<laughs> You're gonna have to. So we got a lot of experience around the table. A lot of folks spend some time on Matagorda Bay. Bill, how many years do you have on Matagorda Bay? Uh, Working in, in Parks and Wildlife and Sea Grant and over Rainham. fifteen. Over fifteen. How about you, Bink? Twenty. Twenty. Just ninety-eight. Mark. Well, let's see. I've been with uh, TNC 23 years, all of that on the coast here. But I started actually in Matagorda County on Matagorda Bay, 1996. And I was here maybe four or four or five years, and then I moved to Corpus. Okay. So I'd been in the area early on. That's where I met Bill. I didn't mean to skip you, Dr. Pollock. Do you want me to call you Dr. Pollock or no. Jennifer? Jenny's fine. Jenny. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any uh, projects besides this? Were you involved in any matter order projects? No. So I, I guess about almost a dozen years in Texas working on oysters, but first project in Matagorda Bay was Half Moon Reef, so just about five years. Okay. Yeah, 2013, I think. And Dave? Since sometime in the early 80s. Good grief. There's <laughs> a wealth of knowledge here. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, folks. We're in, in Bay City. Thank you, Bill, for setting this thing up at the county office. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to circle the table. So we're talking about Half Moon Reef today, which has been a, a very successful project in Matagorda Bay, restoration project. And we're going to go into, much like we did with Cedar Bayou, we're going to go into uh, really great detail on the project, how it was designed, uh, the need for the project, and the impacts of the project, both from an economic standpoint and also from a recreational fishing standpoint. So I hope we get all that covered. But first, let's do introductions. So Bill, why don't you start us off? I'm Bill Balbo. I'm Matagorda County Marine Extension Agent, work for Sea Grant and the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Formerly That's it? Parks and Wildlife, Fisheries Biologist. What else would you like me to add? I don't know. Like mushroom, you like to take pictures of fungus in your backyard? Right, I take a lot of pictures of fungus <laughs> in my backyard. Like to hog hunt? What else? There's more to you than just that. I'm very passionate about Matagorda Bay. I, like, I mean, it's, uh, I started here in 1988 when I was first hired by Parks and Wildlife. And, um, you know, oddly enough, in when I was at Southwest Texas State University, I did not know where the Colorado River ended. And I grew up in Austin, so when I got down here, you know, it was something that just sort of intrigued me. And I started running into people like Bink and other folks and um, learning more and more about the Bay System and all the things that had happened to it since the early 1900s to change its shape, form, and function. And so it's just something that I'm, I like, the Bay's just East and West Bay. I'm very passionate about both bays and the area. So when you left, when you left Parks and Wildlife and have the position you have now, it seemed like it, that'd be a natural fit because you already had a lot of relationships with the community and with the fishermen uh, in this local area. So that, was that an easy move for you? It was a pretty easy transition, yes, because I knew a lot of the people down here. So yeah. Yeah, I just kind of stepped back in a, a different role, but you know, sort of in the same capacity. I guess we'll get into it, but did that help with this project? With your ability, to, you know, to participate in the, the survey process. Oh yeah, I think that um, I think that you know, coming back here with my knowledge of how the project started, and uh, some of the relationships I had back in the day, you know, when um, when I had questions about Half Moon Reef, you know, we were able to talk about it, and and um, I worked a lot with Mark on relaying information, you know, through some of the the channels of communication I had already established here. Okay, awesome. That's a good introduction. Okay. Okay, Bink. Uh, Bink Grimes uh, own uh, Matagorda Sunrise Lodge in Matagorda. Matagorda Properties Real Estate Company. Uh, met a girl from Bay City uh, in 94, about five hours away at East Texas Baptist University. Came home, met her mom and dad, and kind of fell in love with Matagorda Bay. I grew up uh, in Chambers County, about five minutes from Trinity Bay, so it's a lot like it. But uh, somehow we got back down here and and uh, love it. And uh, but spent a lot of time on uh, East and West Matagorda Bay, and it's uh, it's thriving right now. I can tell you, it's it's the best I've seen it in 
my 20 years. It really it, – it's – I don't know what all the numbers say, but I know what our catches say, and it's pretty good. Were you were you an avid angler uh, growing up in Chambers County and Trinity? Yeah, I was. I, I was a baseball player. I, I mean, I, I played in college and played a couple of years in pro ball, and that was kind of my 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 deal. I wasn't. I fished a little bit. I fished on the uh, in Trinity River uh, when I didn't have baseball games, and but baseball was my first love. So I didn't I didn't get to fish as much as I wanted to, but I fished a lot. Uh, but uh, just it just kind of blossomed into something. I, you know, I, I duck and goose hunted over there uh, during in college. Uh, for a uh, you know for a college job when I was when I was off on holidays and it just kind of blossomed into uh, guiding saltwater fishing trips from there so uh, got you know worked towards a doctor to be a fishing guide so it's kind of funny <laughs> I really am enjoying what I'm doing did it, was, was that was that decision to become a guide was that just a just a slow evolution or did you did you kind of have that in the back of your mind that's something you'd always yeah I mean uh, it, it was I I enjoy the duck hunting side of it and I just uh, I was I was a baseball varsity baseball coach in Bay City here for 13 years, and I was guiding uh, uh, during the summer. You know, we get I guess we get about 90 days off, and I guided about 75 of those. And it just uh, I got in the real estate business and uh, and and started buying and selling and, and, and building, and, and just came a time where I had to make a decision. Built the lodge. It uh, it got more than I could handle being a teacher and a coach. So I said, well, better do it full time. So that's mm -hmm. how kind of how it happened. But join it. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, Jenny, or Dr. Pollock is here with us. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, so I am an associate professor of marine biology at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and uh, do a lot of research related to habitat restoration, in particular oysters in Texas, Texas bays, and uh, got involved with Mark and the Nature Conservancy on Half Moon Reef, um, helping out with um, monitoring the ecological development of the reef after it was constructed. And from a marine biologist perspective, it's just been such a a great opportunity, such an exciting place to work, both because of the size of the reef in terms of the, you know, the restoration footprint, but also the long period of time that we've been able to monitor it as well. So being able to really look at how the reef has changed and survived things like you know, hurricanes and droughts and changes in the environment in the bay. It's just a really unique opportunity as a biologist. How did you, how did you come to, uh, into this specialty? Well, you know, as a researcher, it's always been the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, the thing that I'm real passionate about is to do something that has meaning. You know, do not just doing research for research's sake, but to solve a problem. What's a problem out there and what can we do to learn more about it and come up with solutions? And can we come up with solutions that then help the people who are managing the resources to do a better job? And so that sort of led me down the path to conservation and restoration. Um, the Gulf of Mexico is such a unique place to work on habitat restoration just because in terms of oysters, we're actually in a pretty good position compared to the rest of the world. And you know, it, it supports a, a thriving commercial fishery in the state. So there's, you know, there's a real economic generator that comes out of oysters. But it also is, supports recreational fishing. And we know that it provides habitat for lots of critters that live out there. And it filters the water. And so oysters are kind of um, this quintessential um, ecological critter to study because of all the, you know, associated benefits that they, that they provide. And so for me, the applications reach far beyond just sort of studying one thing in, in one bay system. And, you know, the... The aspects are far-reaching into other areas as well. I want to I want to take a moment to publicly, well, whoever listens to this will hear this. Thank you, but <laughs> which may not be many people. I hope it is. But you and Dr. Greg Stuntz uh, came up to Austin to give that kind of testimony. You know, saying those types of things to the Parks and Wildlife Commission a day before the hur Hurricane Harvey hit, and y'all knew it was coming in your general direction. Probably didn't know it was going to be a nearly direct hit but y'all came anyways 
And I think that that speaks to your passion and your 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 devotion and your, your love for uh, this resource that y'all would be willing to step away from your homes that probably needed boarding up and stuff you needed to take care of personally to go to Austin and to take an entire day and go up there and give testimony. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So. I mean, that's true. We were we were it was important to us to be able to add our voices to the conversation and um, you know one of the reasons that people come to the Gulf and people love the Gulf is because of things like oysters that are out there for different reasons. And for us to be able to maintain that lifestyle and maintain that really culturally significant aspect of our lifestyle, we need to find ways to protect it and sustain it into the future. And um, I think it's important that you know people do lend their voices to the conversation when the platform is available for them. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, Mark, can you tell us a little about yourself? In yeah three or minutes or less absolutely <laughs> i was warned just uh -oh. to let you know okay <laughs> well I, I guess i guess i'd start off by saying i'm a uh, maybe a little known little known fact i'm a, about a seventh generation cajun uh, i was born in new orleans actually so i've got quite a bit of salt water in my veins you know from from uh, my folks past but i guess what i'd say is you know when i got out of grad school in the mid 80s you know, one of my first jobs was working for the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, of all things. Uh, we were doing some kind of the initial work on climate change and atmospheric CO2 and stuff like that. That was pretty interesting. Uh, of course, after about six or seven years, I found myself being mostly a lab rat, and I just, you know, I had to get out of there. So I kind of did almost a complete, uh, really almost a paradigm shift, and I ended up in New Mexico working for New Mexico State University, working on one of their large ranches out there, about 28,000 acres. and. And as, as opposed to being a lab rat, I find myself being, you know, riding horseback almost every day. And so that was really fun. I really enjoyed that. But after about three years of living out remotely like that, my wife, you know, kind of, she told me, it's time. We need to go. <laughs> so, so I find myself looking for a job. And I came across this job at the Conservancy working down here in Matagorda County. And uh, uh, it just so happened that a couple of guys on the interview team I happened to go to grad school with. So that was pretty cool. So I got the job. So I first landed here in Matagorda with TNC actually managing the, the Mad Island Marsh Preserve. That's where I was based, uh, but also I had responsibility up and down the coast, all the way from Laguna Madre up to, to Galveston Bay. But anyway, so uh, yeah, so I had been in the area for about five years, and then, um, uh, and then I guess it would have been about 2001, I moved to Corpus, and I've been, I've been down in Corpus since. I'm the Associate Director of Coastal Restoration, so <clears throat> most, most of the restoration work that goes in the water is, is, is out of my shop, so. All up and down the coast. Absolutely, okay. yes, yeah. So anyway, awesome. uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how we got involved with Half Moon Reef, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, Bill had been down here for quite some time and I really, really relied on him quite a bit for, for what, you know, what he knew down here and uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what Half Moon Reef probably could, could accomplish, yeah. and we did. Neat, neat. Okay, Dave? Uh, Dave Busan, I've worked on water in Texas since 1978, and uh, from the Sabine River to the Rio Grande, and from the coast to El Paso. I'm an aquatic biologist, and that's what I love doing. Um, right now, I'm a biologist for Freeze and Nichols. We're an environmental consulting firm, an engineering firm. Worked for Texas Commission on the Environmental Quality, Texas Parks and Wildlife, where I work with Bill. and. Uh, we got involved with Half Moon Reef back around 2010, and I was the project manager on the project. Okay. 
Yeah, that was one of the, when we did that Cedar Bayou podcast, mm-hmm. that was um, for me listening in on the conversation and participating in that. Hearing about what went into the engineering was fascinating to me. So I'm hoping you can dive into that in a little bit because it's just, as, as someone that's obviously not an engineer and really a, a layman when it comes to terms to things with regards to coastal restoration, knowing that you can go into um, a project and, and do different things with the design to it, almost ensure that it'll be successful to me is fascinating. So I'm hoping you can just kind of lay that out for us in, in a few moments. So. All right, I wanted to jump in next was the, uh, I want to talk about the history of Half Moon. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping Bill can can lead us through this. Maybe Bink knows uh, some of this information. I don't know, I don't know where to go with this one. If, if Mark wants to j- start it or Bill, but. Well, I'll, I'll, I, I mean, I can read the summary. No, 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 I'll, I'll okay. kick it off, I'll All right. kick it off. So my recollection, and my memory isn't always what it used to be, but um, I think it was about 2006 is when you and I first started talking about Half Moon Reef, in fact, you, uh, you know, I was in Corpus at the time. Uh, you called me up and said, hey, you know, I know you guys are doing some work in Copano Bay. We were doing some pilot, a pilot project out there, kind of small scale. And, uh, uh, and Bill said, you know I, know, I know you guys are very interested in doing oyster reef work. He said, I, I've got an idea. I said, I, there's an area down here in Matagorda Bay. It's called Half Moon Reef. You know, and, <clears throat> you know, I've been down here quite a while. You know, we've been, you know, sampling the area quite a bit. Uh, over the years, uh, he said, you know, I've been, I've been tracking salinity uh, for a number of years. I've looked at the data. It looks like, you know, the salinities are, are fairly moderate. You know, there's some peaks and highs and lows and whatever. But uh, I think this is a great spot. There's great substrate, hard bottom. Problem is there's just no oysters out there. And, uh, and he said, you know, this, this, was a, this was a historical reef. It was very large and very productive at one time, particularly after the, the turn, uh, about ni- early 1900s. Um, so anyway, that immediately caught my attention. Uh, you know, the Conservancy was really trying to get uh, into oyster reef restoration in a big way. I mean, we already had been working in the area, but uh, I was I was really uh, excited about that. I think we even met in Port Lavaca. Uh, uh, spent quite a bit of time. Uh, Bill pulled out some maps and stuff, and you know, after maybe a couple of hours or more, I mean, he he laid out a pretty good case and an argument for um, you know doing a, a restoration there and. And that it would probably be successful, and uh, so I think that's really conceptually how a lot of that got started. And of course, there's a whole lot of ground between you know the years that ensued between you know going from that concept all the way to actual construction, which actually was uh, we started in 2013 uh, when we actually started putting rock in the water. So a lot of time, a lot of stuff happened in those ensuing years, but really the concept really started with Bill. And Bill, you had you had discovered that. I mean, what made you um, choose, I think Mark kind of mentioned it, the salinity regime was optimal, but was there anything else with this site that made you say, hey, this probably would be a good spot? Um, Yeah, and what motivated me actually when I found the spot was that Mark and I had actually had a conversation prior to me calling him about his Copano Reef Restoration and Nature Conservancy was embarking on this new effort to restore shellfish habitat. Um, I couldn't think of anything in Matagorda Bay at the time, but I had, um, there had been some seismic work done in Matagorda Bay and I'd gone out to the old Half Moon Reef site and we had pulled around sounding the bottom and you know the bottom was very solid and when I felt the bottom I thought well you know it it occurred to me that you know Mark had been, they were talking about expanding the reef restoration, shellfish restoration area from the Copano to other locations. So given that the substrate seemed suitable to carry a load you know in my amateur you know estimation of that I started looking at our historical salinity data <clears throat> and as Mark said, you know, 
it was a little bit on the high side sometimes, but you know what I thought was, you know, there had been a big change structurally to the bay in the, about 1990, 91, when they diverted the Colorado River back into Matagor Bay, to West Bay. And so my feeling was, you know, having experienced a few floods down that river, that since it was at the point at the far end of that fetch of the bay where the river entered, that, you know, we would have high flow periods where the salinity would be moderated enough at that point to provide probably optimal salinity for oyster growth on that reef. And so that reef, if constructed there, certainly it would be on the high side sometimes, but it would provide more habitat in a place that historically supported reef, and it would, it would lend some resilience also to the oyster habitat and oyster fisheries in the bay. And so that's, that's kind of where that went. And then I called Mark to talk about it, and it started kind of growing from there. Do you want to speculate what led to the demise of, of the reef? I mean, originally, I think I read in the report it was 486 acre uh, site. Something happened right. to where there were very few <clears throat> oysters remaining. And, um, so what do you think? Well, I, I initially spoke to Dr. Sammy Ray, the late Dr. Sammy Ray in Galveston, about what he thought. And we had lunch a couple of times and discussed the issue. And we sort of concluded that it was probably, you know, a series of events that most likely, you know, resulted in the demise of Half Moon. And it's basically it's flattening. And that was uh, the river was diverted into the Gulf of Mexico in the early 1900s. So the salinity regime was altered. The intercoastal waterway was dredged and rerouted a couple of times right there in the vicinity of Half Moon Reef. And then Carla, we think maybe Hurricane Carla, one of the other big storms in that point might have flattened the reef. And, you know, we, we didn't really have any proof that a hurricane could affect an oyster reef until 2003 when Claudette came through. And um, we had been sampling in the bay. I had been here since 97 and was fairly familiar with the bay. And it was a reef just in front of Palacios Oliver Point Reef. It was a large shoal that went from the mainland out to the Palacios Channel. After Claudette, that reef was gone. It was flattened. And so at that point, I felt, you know, there's a good likelihood that a hurricane, you know, if, if the structure is weakened by, you know, poor oyster growth, you know, from salinity, whatever, and then the, the dredging around it or whatever else, that it's possible that the, the structure was compromised to such that a hurricane might have knocked it flat. So I'd that's heard, my guess. I heard reports um, after Harvey. Jenny may be able to comment on this, but uh, my coworker John Blaha and I've heard from Jay Watkins as well in conversations with after Harvey they, they noticed some of the reefs that they fish, uh, you know, near Rancis Bay and St. Charles, close to St. Charles Bay. Those tops were completely knocked off. Same type of thing. So I think it's uh, I think it's not far fetched to believe that that could happen. What do you think, so. Dave? Well, cer certainly Bill and Sammy are experts. Uh, some other factors that people throw into the mix are that. Uh, in the mid-1900s, uh, shell was a valuable commodity. And supposedly, you could not harvest live shell, you could, and you couldn't harvest near live reef. But as Bill said, you know, if the salinity gets off, you can have a reef that dies, period, period, and it can be dead for a year or two years. And some people speculate that when those reefs were dead, they were much more susceptible to shell harvest uh, for building roads, houses, things like that. So that's one thing. I guess the other thing that I've always felt personally is once the reef got flattened, uh, we know there's hard substrate, there's shell there, and if that area could have remained undisturbed, I always felt that the reef would reestablish. But I think that area, because it's a ridge, it's susceptible and, and maybe a, a good place to shrimp and trawl for shrimp and uh, part of what I've speculated is that once the the reef got flattened uh, you had trawling 
there on a regular basis, and we know that uh, uh, Matagorda Bay gets a lot of uh, commercial uh, fishing, and that, that trawling could keep shells spread and keep a, a vertical reef from redeveloping in that area. So th those are the only things I'd add to okay. what Bill said, but no, nobody knows for right. certain. I think, I think that's, well, that gives us a good background on it. Besides, uh, well, let's add one more thing. You, you mentioned at lunch today, the lighthouse. I'd never known that that lighthouse that used to be, where is it now? It used it's to be on the Port Lavaca. It's still by the causeway? Uh, yeah, they're, they well, move it. it was in a, in a lot. It's down there by the Port Lavaca Park. Um, Bauer, the Bauer. By the Bauer Convention Center. Center. Yeah, by the okay. Bauer Convention Center. Yeah, because I think the Bowers actually bought it when they decommissioned it and they moved it, hmm. the Bauer family. Yeah. And it was over near Point Comfort across from the Al generally Alcoa mm -hmm. in a big lot. And um, when I came, I think it was in 88 maybe, it was just a round house that sat out there in the grass forever. And I, they told me it was a lighthouse. I thought they were just pulling my leg because I'd come from Austin. And it was the Octagon Lighthouse that was out there uh, that they they decommissioned around the Civil War and then they recommissioned and then they removed. I mean, that reef was so substantial and such a hazard, they put a lighthouse on it. Right. And I, uh, commercial fishermen, yeah. from what I heard, fishermen used to use it as refuge during the storms. They would they would have to use that to um, right. shelter. Yeah, there, there, there was a report, and I can't remember the federal agency at the time, but uh, uh, there was that report that we had access to uh, of a actually a complete uh, assessment of oyster stocks in Matagorda Bay. Right and East at Matagorda Bay back around 1905, 1906. And, um, and yeah, I mean, if you read the notes from that study, uh, there were times during the winter, uh, you know, after a couple of funnel passages where, I mean, it, the reef was exposed. I mean, that's how high in the profile uh, in the water column it was. Yeah, I think the 1905 report talks about the reef being three miles long and in that area being up to six feet high and the nav charts until relatively recently still indicated the reef uh, up to within one foot of the surface of the water so we know it was very long and very tall five to six feet tall in areas so it it was a significant hazard in justifying the lighthouse and i think i've heard that uh, folks in sabine say that the sabine reef in some areas is like four to five feet tall so that shows you what a natural reef could look like when it's not uh, harvested or when environmental conditions aren't altered to negatively affect affect the reef. Before we jump into engineering and design, which Dave, I hope you uh, will take the lead on, is there anything, Mark and Bill, from that you want to cover from conception to Dave's part in the, or Dave's role in the project? Well, <clears throat> I guess I would say that, uh, you know, after, you know, we were, had started this, as you, as you will, conceptual stage 2006, 2007, um, I had gotten, um, you know, great idea, no money, right? What are we going to do? So um, I actually got a call from one of my colleagues in the Nature Conservancy who headed up our global marine team at the time. And he said, Mark, you know, uh, the, uh, if you look at the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Civil Works budget, they've put $4 million in a particular line item category, uh, which is uh, funding that... Uh, had never been put in that line item before. It was coming through the Estuary uh, Restoration Act funding. Uh, and there was a council that was put together, the federal major federal agencies that actually, uh, you know, uh, we're going to handle that. So they put out an RFP and we responded to it. So we kind of scrambled that spring of 2007 and um, put a proposal together, submitted it. And, and then we started, uh, I don't want to get 
get us too much in the weeds here, but we actually knew now that we really wanted to do this project, but we still had no money. So starting in like December 2007, uh, Myself and Rafael Calderon, uh, who formerly was with TNC, we would, we held these meetings, like in Texas City, where we pulled a lot of the federal and state agencies and NGOs together and said, hey, we have this idea, this is what we'd like to do. What, what do you think? What, you know, how do you think we should approach that? And so that was great. And in 2008, I got a letter from the Assistant Ar uh, Secretary of the Army, hey, we liked your project, we're gonna give you some money. And so at that point then, you know, it, it was set up to be a project partnership, therefore I had to bring a certain percentage of the, of the funding to the table. We continue to do additional planning. We met again in December of 2000, 2008. We pulled that team back together again in Texas City. You know, again, all the fate, uh, federal and state resource agencies um, and uh, so forth, even, you know, Bayes Foundation. But anyway, um, once again, we checked in with them. They gave us a lot of good advice. And then a lot of people were saying, but do but, but you really know what's out there? <laughs> you know, this is all speculation. So I was able to get some, <clears throat> some private funding through a corporation and then contracted with an environmental consulting company out of Louisiana to actually go out there in the summer of 2009 and actually do a very extensive bathymetric, geotechnical, habitat survey, <clears throat> what have you. And of that supposed you know, historical 400 acres, we identified probably uh, about 300 acres of, of hard sand and shell hash. And, and it was kind of, uh, kind of laid out longitudinally. But clearly, you know, and, and, and we found no oysters, right? And so clearly, I was convinced then that, that Bill was right. There was a substantial amount of habitat out there or substrate for which we could put a large project on. And so anyway, I guess I don't want to get us again too, too far in the weeds. But then, of course, you know, at that point, then I um, also was able to get some uh, Coastal Impact Assistance Program funding. Um, so I wanted to do this project in a couple of different phases. So I put in a proposal. I was lucky enough to, to get that funding. It was pretty substantial, quite a bit of money. And at that point, I really had uh, the funding that I needed to actually formally get, you know, a good, reputable coastal engineering firm uh, involved in the project. And that's where I got involved with Dave. Dave happened to be with PBS&J at the time, which was another company, uh, and he can tell you the history on that. But but that's when I got involved with uh, with Dave at that point. Did y'all have Did y'all have the project size in mind, or was the size just a function of how much funding you were able to receive? I mean, we what, if I remember correctly, and this is you know, was my, is the way I think anyway with most of these projects, you know, let's permit, let's, let's design and permit as much area as we possibly can, kind of regardless of what the funding source is, because, you know, um, uh, because, you know, at some point there, there may be opportunities to continue to phase the project, and, and I don't know if we'll get into this later, but it's kind of how we've done, Dave and I have done Half Moon Reef. I mean, we've, We've done about 54 acres, but we probably have another 50 acres that we could actually build out okay. right now. I mean, okay. it's shovel ready and ready to go. Had we not done that and merely designed uh, and, and permitted only what we thought we had funding for, you know, we, we may not have this opportunity that, okay. that we actually have now. Okay, Dave, uh, why don't you step in and, and kind of walk us through the design of this project, kind of what goes into it, and like I said, in, in layman's terms for folks like me that can understand. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not an engineer, so you're not gonna hear any technical engineering firm uh, terms. And really, Bill and Mark uh, were major contributors to the engineering design of the project. Because unbeknownst to me, I was not aware of the conversations that Bill and Mark were having prior to the time we got hired, which is, was around 2010, but I do remember meeting with Bill in 2007, and Bill's idea was 
you know, there's a place called Half Moon Reef, and I'd just like to see what would happen if somebody put a bunch of rocks out there. So that was part of the design. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my engineering. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Mark had, uh, with Bill, they had chosen this really great site. They had had this other firm had identified that the substrate would support uh, material to support reefs. He had done a lot of talking with the agencies uh, about the project. And I think the parts that we contributed to were, at the time, Mark was getting some pushback from the agencies, saying this site, salinity is too high to support oysters. And what we told Mark was, don't focus on oysters. Focus on creating hard reef habitat that is going to support a healthy ecosystem. Oysters are going to grow there sometime, and sometimes they're not, but you're still going to have hard reef habitat, which contributes to the habitat diversity of the bay, and it's a type of habitat that's greatly lacking. So even though this is a 50-plus acre project, it's less than 1%, probably less than 0.1% of the bay area. So you're talking about a bay that is a couple of hundred thousand acres, and most of it is open, bare bottom, sand or mud. So you've contributed to the diversity. In terms of the design, we had help from the Water Development Board. Uh, we looked at currents going back and forth across uh, the ridge that was formerly Half Moon Reef. Mark had the great idea. He said, you know, do we know oysters are going to colonize something if we build out here? So. We built cages and we filled them with rock and oysters and uh, concrete. Yep. And we built them. Uh, the other the other engineering aspect that uh, was that I believe was really important was Mark was really pushing uh, some of the latest uh, science being emphasized regarding oyster reefs was that vertical reef relief building them higher, not just close to the bottom, was important. It gets them up in the water column, away from sediment accumulation, uh, away from low dissolved oxygen that can sometimes form on the bottom. So Mark had the idea that he really wanted to have something that stuck up above the bottom. So we built these cages that actually stuck up three feet high and uh, we had them out for a year as we were working on permitting and design features and. We had two sites, three cages at each site, and every few months we'd go out and pull out a cage and see how they were doing, and they were doing great. Um, and so we knew that uh, oysters were there, that they'd colonize whatever was going to be built. We knew that there were currents that were going to carry waste away and deliver food to the uh, location. And we also, as I said, we speculated to some extent that Trawling may be keeping oysters from establishing there. So, and we also knew the speculation that the hurricane had uh, flattened the reef. So we chose large material that we knew was not, or that we believed was not going to be uh, moved by a hurricane. So we have some really big rocks, some are three feet or larger in size. Uh, and beyond that, we knew that Mark had lots of money and he was going to buy lots of rock <laughs> and uh, our objective with regard to the rock was to make sure as much of that rock was as, as exposed to the water as possible and in as 
many variety of ways as possible. So we built, we designed the reef to be three feet high, uh, believing that it may settle up to a foot within the time frame that Mark uh, had contractual commitments to ensure it stayed two feet high after two years. And we built reef rows that were, uh, we could have built them all equidistant, and, but we didn't. We, we built them at three different distances apart because we believe that some fish may use narrower distances as kind of protection and, and uh, bigger fish may use bigger gaps between the fish. And it created headaches, I think, to some extent for Jenny's uh, post-construction mo monitoring. But those were the basic features of the engineering. And it, it wasn't complicated engineering. It was uh, just figuring out how to uh, maximize the amount of rock exposed to water and having rock that uh, wasn't going to be moved by hurricanes or uh, trawls. Yeah, interestingly enough, <clears throat> you know, we in watching Harvey and its, its track, it actually went up, you know, close to the hill country, did a U-turn, and if you follow the track, it went directly over Half Moon Reef. So this summer, I think probably probably about June, we're going to do our, our last, what we would call our post 48 month uh, multi-beam size scan sonar, which gives you extremely accurate information uh, on, on you know, the height in the, uh, of that reef uh, and its just overall shape, right? And we can, at a very fine scale, we'll be able to determine if there's been any changes between, let's say, uh, you know, two years post-construction when we did it in an as-built. But my point is, we have compared from as-built in 2014 to two years post-construction, if you average all of those numbers out on the height, we've act, that reef is actually accreted. So when Dave and I built it three foot because we had to keep it at a minimum two, and we were worried that you know, we didn't know what kind of subsidence or sinkage we would get. So we kind of over-engineered, if you will. But as it turns out, the reef is actually accreting. Now, albeit it's only maybe, I think it's something like 0.75 foot or something like that. I have to go back and check, but you know it's kind of nominal, but but it's definitely not subsiding. Yeah. And even if it was subsiding, then it's the oyster at a rate faster there could be compensatory yeah. oyster growth that's actually compensating for any subsidence we might be getting. So that was very encouraging. So so Dave, Dave, we overbuilt it, but anyway, we didn't know at the time. And uh, so anyway, my, I think what we'll do is when we do that multi-beam this uh, June or July, we'll have an opportunity to go back and compare. Uh, what we did two years post-construction to see if there was, has, has been any impact from Hurricane Harvey. Uh, we have done some scuba diving out there, uh, Jenny and I, and Jenny's team, and uh, I don't think we've noticed anything substantially just in some of the scuba diving that we've done on the edges of the reef, any kind of, any, any you know, sedimentation that may be building up on the yeah, reef. No, we, I mean, the thing that we notice the most is the growth of the oysters in the reef. I mean, yeah. we are just seeing I mean, the, the fact that the reef is accreting is because there are very large, very robust, but there's a very large, very robust oyster population out there. I mean, we're talking about, you know, legal harvestable oyster in Texas is three inches. We're talking about four or five, six inch oysters out there on Half Moon Reef. And so that's, that's what we're seeing is that reef is real vibrant and growing. It's sort of a conundrum because when you talk about building a vertical reef, uh, all the regulatory agencies, and, and for understandable reasons, are concerned about having something so high that it's going to be uh, a hazard to navigation. The conundrum is, is that if you have a healthy reef and it's growing vertically, it's going to become a hazard to navigation or 
something that people in the area are going to have to be aware of. Uh, so it's an, it's an interesting conundrum that the oyster, the reef's growing. Well, we'll just bring the lighthouse back out and put it back on again. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> Problem solved. I think it might be useful to, to kind of describe the way that a reef, an oyster reef builds upon itself as well, just to kind of give a visual of what happens. But, you know, with a natural oyster reef, you have sort of the, the, the scaffolding, if you will, the, the internal foundation of the reef is the shells of sort of the granddaddy oysters that form the, the, the structure that the younger generations of oysters are cementing onto and then forming new reefs. So at the core, you sort of have this dead substructure of oyster shells, and then you have this veneer of living oysters that forms the outside of the reef. When we're restoring a reef like Half Moon Reef, what we're doing is putting that necessary scaffolding back in place. So the, the, the substrate material, the limestone, forms sort of that backbone, and then you get that veneer of live oysters. And what Dave is saying is exactly right. Over time, you expect that the reef grows higher, that it grows wider, it, it forms this natural mound, it gets it up off of the bottom, it creates more habitat for fish, and it gives the oysters more flow so that they get more food delivered to them, and that is what a healthy reef, reef should look like. And you're right, it, it kind of is more of a management challenge because then it is necessarily going to um, get closer to the surface and potentially impede navigation. But that's what you want to see from an ecological standpoint. Was it just limestone that went down? Were there any other material types? Was it all limestone rock? Or? No, it, there, there were two different types, Shane. Um, in the initial phase uh, of the project, um, uh, it, was, uh, it was the limestone. In fact, it was limestone that was quarried out of uh, Missouri uh, and uh, barged down the Mississippi. Uh, so it came from quite a ways away. And then kind of the smaller phase of the project, kind of up on the northern end, was actually, we actually used uh, recycled uh, concrete. Okay. So we were able to find a source uh, kind of in the point, I think the point comfort area, there was a cement factory or whatever it is up there. And we went up, Dave and I went up there and took a look at it and scoped it out. But yeah, this was recycled concrete. It had no hydrocarbons in it, no metals. We were very specific about that. Uh, no plastics, no hydrocarbons, no steel, no metal in it. Uh, and so it was pretty good stuff. Of course, we had to break it up and get it to our specifications. But to answer your question, uh, yeah, there were two. There was limestone and recycled concrete. And why was it laid down in, in rows, straight lines? Is there a reason for that, or does that just make it easier for study purposes, or is there a design feature to that? Yeah, the design feature was just to stretch it out as far as possible. Like I said, just trying to expose as much rock as possible. Okay. And so you can, um, in some cases, people have built artificial reefs where they're flat platforms, more or less, uh, but we wanted if you have a flat platform, you have material in the middle that may, may not be getting the same exposure as material on the edge. And so we were trying to maximize that edge available. Mark also reminded me of a design feature that we considered was at the time, we talked with folks in North Carolina and they had had problems with their oyster reefs because they got infected with sponges, boring sponges. And once those oyster reefs got infected with uh, boring sponges, oyster spat wouldn't settle. So we specifically uh, asked for rock of a certain density to try to uh, maximize resistance to boring sponges. And I don't, I don't know if that's worked or not. Yeah, it seems oh, yeah. To, have, to have worked. And that's a good point, is that the material that you choose, um, you want it to be as long-lasting as possible. It, it forms that foundational building block, and you don't want that building block to crumble. So I think that was a really important um, piece to consider in material selection is something that's going to last a long time. 
to biological threats as well as to changes in the environment. Is there anything else to the design you want to add? Because I think it'd be a good chance for Jenny to jump in and just kind of talk about what goes into the, the monitoring of the reef and what your team's looking at. Uh, so the, the monitoring of the reef, we've, we've taken kind of a number of approaches. We've wanted to look at, obviously, the development of the oyster population because that is, was kind of the primary goal to see how the oysters were gonna, go, going to develop. But also, as the oyster reef has developed, it's been very interesting to us to look at things like uh, the fish, the shrimp, the crabs that are all utilizing the nooks and crannies, this, this really lacking, this hard substrate habitat that, as Dave described, is really lacking in the bay. And we know that there are certain critters that really depend on the reef for a number of things, either for feeding, coming in and feeding on the little organisms that are living there, or as a nursery habitat where they're gonna lay eggs that, that attach onto the reef, or as a place that they spend their entire life. I mean, there are certain organisms that you only find on the reef. And so when the reef is gone, those organisms aren't found somewhere else. They're just completely wiped out from, from that area of the bay. Um, so we've looked at things like, uh, like, like uh, Mark mentioned, we're doing a lot of diving on the reef. So we dive down, we remove some of the, the um, oysters that are on the rocks. We look at things like, uh, what are the different sizes of oysters that are out there? We look to see if disease has been developing in the oyster population. This was something that was another sort of metric that we were interested in, in looking at. Uh, we know in, in the Gulf of Mexico and really around the U.S., the oysters can be susceptible to a disease that doesn't affect people at all, but can really um, slow down the growth of the oysters and even cause severe mortalities, particularly in hot, salty waters, which is what we see in, in Texas a lot. Um, the interesting thing for us has been that because the, the reef is really... Um, is built in an area that was pretty much wiped out of its source population of oysters. It's been relatively disease-free for you know three to four years of its development. What that means is that you get a much larger oyster. It's not um, accumulating disease in its tissue and, and dying off at an early rate. So that's been really nice. We also, as I said before, we see a really unique community of organisms that live on the reef. Um, it is not representative of what you saw before the reef was built, and it is not representative of what you see adjacent to the reef. So it really has increased the biodiversity in the bay and um, increased a lot of the you know, ecosystem functioning that depends on all the, um, the biological diversity that now exists. Are those communities similar to what you see on other reefs in the bay, or, mm -hmm. or is there yeah, any? Yeah, so, so they're very similar to what you would expect to see in a natural reef. And that's kind of one of the wonderful things about um, the way that Half Moon Reef has developed is that we, we, we aren't seeing a community that's sort of an outlier in terms of the organisms that's living, that are living on the reef. You know, the goal is that you're replacing some sort of function when you, re when you restore a habitat. Um, that function should be as similar to the functions that we would expect a natural habitat to provide. So the fact that Half Moon Reef is, is providing for and sustaining an ecological community that's representative of that that we see on natural reefs is really promising, showing that you know, things are going well on that reef. Do you all have any, any sense of of what the number of species that are using the reef, you know, is it in the dozens, hundreds? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's in the dozens, I would say, in the high dozens. You know, the, the sort of final aspect of the project, Mark and I were just talking about this on the drive up today, is that we really are trying to tease apart now what are the organisms that are really found only on the reef or the, the organisms that are really enhanced by the reef being there? And can we start to come up with some calculations of if you restore an acre of oyster reef in a Texas Bay, or if you restore an acre of an oyster reef in Matagorda Bay, what does that mean in terms of how many organisms are enhanced by that? What is the, the biomass of those organisms that are now uh, enhanced in an acre of oyster reef? What is the dollar value of the enhancement of those organisms on an acre of oyster reef? And when you start to translate, I think, the ecological 
benefits to some sort of economic benefits, you know, dollar values. It's sort of the simplest way to communicate. Everybody understands a dollar bill. Absolutely. And so that's kind of this final piece is to try to really translate these ecological benefits into a really understandable, um, you know, metric for everyone. And so when does, what, what is the research process or the monitoring process look like from this point forward? Is it for the next five years, 10 years? How long does this carry forward? Depending on funding, I mean, well, we are entering sort of our, our final phase, I would say, of, of monitoring at Half Moon Reef. And so, you know, at the end, we're going to be able to look back, have this retrospective five years of data that's included hurricanes, it's included droughts, it's included um, incredible shifts in the salinity in the bay um, and shifts in the community of organisms as well. But it's also given us a chance to look at resiliency of the reef. So how resilient was the reef right after it was built to change its environmental conditions? How did that change when the reef became more fully developed and there's more habitat created by more oysters. And what it seems, what we, our data seem to show us is that the reef has become more resilient over time. So you have larger oysters out there. They maybe are creating a habitat that's more, uh, creates more of a buffer to the organisms that are living there and they're able to maybe, um, you know, sustain themselves across big ecological shifts in a way that is better now than they were able to right when the reef was, was built. So, you know, when you build a reef or when you do any restoration, it, it's kind of a disturbance to the system itself. It's kind of a shock to the system. You put all this material down, you you know, change the way that it looks and it, it sort of takes a while for things to really stabilize and now we think we've, we've reached a, a, a situation on Half Moon Reef where things are starting to stabilize and when you have more biological diversity, it means if you have a hurricane or something and you lose a few species, it's okay because it's diverse enough that the system can handle that shock. Whereas in the beginning, you maybe only have a few species out there and if you have something like a hurricane that comes through, if you only have a few species and you lose, lose those few species, it's like starting over again. And so, are y'all finding anything, if you can speak to some of the specific results, um, you know, Dave mentioned that some of the rows were further apart than others. They were set at certain distances to aid in the research. Are y'all finding any differences with rows that are close together as opposed to those are further apart? Is there, from a, uh, I guess, a design point moving forward with the restoration, are you able to look at the data and say, here's how you should do it from now on? Um, that's a good question. So I would say that We've looked at the reef as a reef complex, if you will. So natural reefs sort of have these hills and valleys, if you will, and that is an, sort of an essential piece of a natural oyster reef. And so we looked at the reef as that reef complex, not as sort of individual pieces and how close or how far apart were they. We looked at different substrate types. So we looked at, did the concrete matter versus the, the limestone? And overwhelmingly what we've seen that matters is it just matters if it's reef versus not reef. So the okay. reef is, the biggest difference. Having that structure there is the thing that's driving the biological community versus a totally different biological community um, that was absent before the reef that was, was created. And that's what we see in our sort of off reef control areas that we're monitoring. So really all other differences are really swamped by the, the differences that are driven by the reef being there. Okay. Well, I, you, you mentioned economics and I do want to jump into that, but I think it'd be better to, let, to talk about the fishing aspect of the first thing and then we can all you know, round table of economics and the report that awesome report that you guys generated uh, um, recently. So Bink, you've been fishing Matagorda Bay for quite a while. And how long have you been fishing? Uh, were you fishing Half Moon Reef before the restoration? Uh, yeah, on the the far out point where the, there's a there's a buoy way out in the middle of the bay. I used to hit it maybe two or three times. Uh, a summer on the way back from Portal Connor, on a, uh, we'd make a wade, we'd come across there. It was like 11 or 12 foot of water out there, but sometimes they would have fish on it, sometimes it wouldn't. Uh, we'd, we'd always hit it, but we never, the only, t the only time we ever fished it was just coming back from another spot. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't go target it. Whereas now, 
if I've got less than five knots or less than ten knot winds, I'm going to that reef. I mean, it's it's something else. I tell you, we, it's kind of funny how we found it. I didn't we didn't know anything that was going on out there, and uh, and one of my uh, guide buddies that put uh, Ray Sexton coming out of Palacios, he hit part of it one morning in the dark. Uh, and I mean uh, his boat. Yeah, his boat hit one of the rocks and, and didn't know. He didn't see the buoys. It was marked. Didn't see the buoys. He said, "Man, there's something out there." He said, "I'm going to look at it on the way home." And he said, "Man, they've got that thing marked. That's a, that's a, that's a reef. It's something. Something's going on." And uh, and I, I promise you, about ten days later, I got an email from Mark because uh, uh, I'm a freelance writer wanting to, you know, me to get the word out and everything. So I call Ray. I said, "I know what's out there." He said, "It's a reef." And he started telling me about it. So this was uh, June of 2014. I guess it was built in 13. So this is June right. of 2014. And we're on the South Shoreline of West Matagorda Bay, making a wade in June. Couldn't, I mean, it, one of those days, they just couldn't get anything going, couldn't get anything going. And uh, at about 11, 11.30 that morning, we said, heck, we don't have anything to lose. Let's go out to that reef and see if anything's on it. And we made three drifts on that reef and had 30 trout on soft plastics, two of us. And we go, holy moly, what is going on here? <laughs> Went back the next day, it was blowing 15 to 20 and still had 20 trout on it and it about blew us over but that was how many fish was on that thing so it kind of said oh man if it if it uh if we can get out there again you know and that's when we could still uh keep 10 10 fish uh, a piece so that, that's how i kind of know it was uh 14 so uh, now you know I, I was talking before we came in here the last five days from wednesday thursday friday saturday took yesterday off today's uh monday has probably been the best five days i've ever had on that reef past five days it's march the 20th Ninth. i guess yeah. 19th and i mean two and a half three pound fish showed up and it, it's just it's it's pretty incredible and we've had some I, I tell customers i said you know i've come out here and with three guys i made 17 casts and caught 15 trout and done i've done that a bunch i've also come out here on no tide days and it blowing hard and it off color and have to stay three or four hours but still get your fish and that's that's a testament of you know what kind of structure it is and what it's actually holding because you can come out here on because you're not going to catch fish don't feed every day it, it just we don't catch them every day in the in the guide business it just doesn't happen and but there's some days when they feed and they feed and they feed and it's just magic out there and that's the way it was the last the last five days and uh, the thing about that reef is you can go out there and you can catch them on plastics it's a little tougher because you have to know where all the 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 limestone is and it, it i kind of think i look at it as it's, it's an underwater jetty that i mean that's what it is it's an underwater jetty it's kind of like a football field you kind of look at the five the you know the the uh, five yard line going down a football field and that's kind of what it looks like to me and we, you were talking earlier about uh, how they designed it uh each set of the rocks are a little uh wider on different spots and i can tell you i i believe what you correct me if i'm wrong but i think the wider spots are on the west end of it am i right and then uh, with, with all the limestone, and then mm -hmm. as you get down towards the point, it's concrete, and it seems like it's it's a little uh, closer together. That's what I see on my charts, and right. and I see in my I guess four years now to fish it. This has been the fifth year. I see more fish on the areas where it's uh, wider between the two between the set of rocks. That's what I'm seeing, and um, and I'm seeing more fish on the the side where all the limestone is. Now, I'm not saying you don't catch it down there on the on the end where the point is and where it's a, seems to be a little bit shallower, but it, on that far west end, I always start there, and, and I very rarely ever end up on the end 
the east end where the where the point is very rarely yeah, it just seems like it holds more fish and and your catch uh you know we you don't catch a a, a huge you don't go out there trophy trout fishing it, it's it's just not one you know we've caught them up to four pounds out there and that's wonderful but i mean we we caught a box full of two and a half three pound trout this weekend and uh i mean that's a that's a heck of a west bay trout that's a and and then at times the black drum move in and which they did and they're all five and six pound black drum and then we caught one that went 40 pounds that just no uh, oh. you know all you wanted that a <laughs> lot, lot, lot of sheephead uh we caught a 28 inch uh spanish mackerel this weekend that i've never in the five years never caught that uh three years ago at about 1 one thirty in the afternoon same type deal went on the south shoreline uh waiting didn't get a very good bite uh going and i said man i know there's fish out there on the reef let's go out there and drift it went out there popped our trout uh Triple tail came up on the side. We flipped a bass assassin to it and caught a 13-pound triple tail out there. Uh, I tell you one thing that, that I can't understand is in the four years I've been on there, I've never caught a red on it. Never caught a redfish on it. Don't know why. Don't know why. Uh, and, and a lot of guides, you know, I mean, some days we'll have, you know, we'll be running 10 boats out of my lodge, and eight of us will be on that reef. And, and we all talk, you know, uh, just in the many days. Who, who went to the big reef? Who, we call it the big reef is what we call it. Because it's you know it's a twenty mile run from Matagorda, and it's it, you know for us to make a twenty mile run, it's it's got to be good, yeah. and 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 we do it quite often. But we we can't understand. We figure, hey, give it a little while; those big bull reds will show up on it just like a jetty. But they haven't. I don't know why. I don't know what what it is about it. But uh, you see a lot of bait fish on it. Oh you yeah, you, you start seeing these little glass. I don't know glass minnows or uh, we little bitty minnows come in during the summertime. You might know. I don't know oh, what they could are. Could be anchovies. Could be some might be, yeah. yeah, might be. Uh, we we see crabs uh, uh, swimming uh, underneath. You know, uh, when it's clear, we can see that. Uh, don't see a whole lot of mullet on it, but not saying that they're not there. But we see we see shad and little bitty minnows on it. And when we start seeing those little, especially when it's uh, when it's calm and you start seeing little, we call them rain minnows. I don't know because it looks like raining on top of the water. When you see that, <laughs> the fish are gonna be there. It's, it's, it's something. But you know, you can get across it, uh, and it, it just uh, you can throw a top water on it. You can throw. Uh, uh, there was days that you know this week that we we're fishing with plastics. We threw plastics and caught plenty of fish on it. But a live shrimp rarely ever makes it out of there if it's if it's halfway decent green water i mean it just doesn't it, it really doesn't i mean there are days on the, that you have to work for them and that's because fish don't stay on that thing they come and go with the tides and it's but i mean very rarely do you not catch them on that reef and it's uh and the amateur the, the guy that can that or the kid like i had you know spring break this past week and we had a lot of kids on a boat and i mean just uh, non-stop and it was kind of fun i wish i'd had a uh um a recorder because there was so much hooping and hollering on that on that reef Saturday. I mean, I can't tell you there was because there was not a breath of wind and there was about twenty five boats on it that I counted. Just, uh, and it's fifty four acres and twenty five boats. You'd think that there's but there's plenty of places to fish. I mean, that's all I was going to ask. Is yeah. it becoming like you know competition for space on this thing? With kind of, but not. You know, there's uh, you're always going to have people that you know it, they're, they're always going to be out there. Those those people that are not considerate, but mo for the most part, people know how to fish that thing. They they'll drift and then when they you can power pole down on top of those rocks uh, when it's when it's calm. I, I would I wouldn't suggest putting an anchor out because I've lost a couple of those. Uh, so I don't anchor on it. But uh, we'll, we'll drift across it and then come back around and drift it again. Uh, but then when you when it's when it's calm enough, when we hit a fish, we'll we'll power pole down and work on them in a, in a specific area. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just one of those spots that I mean, if, if you know, it, it costs you about 20 gallons to get down there, but it's so worth <laughs> it. Uh, 
I mean, it's five to ten. There, and there's days where I try to fight it. I know the fish are there, and I'm looking at the flags of Matagorn. I'm going, well, should I do it? Should I do it? And it's blowing 15. I'll try to look at buoys over in uh, Port O'Connor. Yeah, it's blowing 15, 16. Man, I think I can. And it gets out there, and it just blows you off the water. And, but, you know, you don't want to make that run because once you're there, you're there. Yeah. You yeah. know? And uh, uh, But we would we never, ever fish that side of the bay, ever, until uh, – I, I tell you, we would fish Coon Island a little bit when we would uh, – coming from Matagorn, when we'd get a hard east wind, we'd do that. Uh, when it would blow everything out, else out or in the Matagorda way. Uh, but we very rarely ever came over here uh, until this reef was built. It's changed the way we fished. It's changed the boats that we bought. You know, we, we're, we're running 25-foot uh, Haney's right now specifically. That boat does a lot, but we also can fish 20, 25 days a year on that reef. And on those marginal days when it's blowing 10 to 15, we can still fish that reef comfortably. And that's the reason why we're running that boat for that, that reef is so – so productive for us. So you, is it safe to say, I mean, obviously the reefs has changed the way you go about your business. It's changed the way we fish. It, 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 it just, it puts another uh, plan in the back pocket. Yeah. I mean, it really does. I mean, just like Friday, I, I knew I had customers that wanted to wait. I said, and I said in my back of my head, we're going to go wait. I know there's fish all over that reef. I could go there right now at seven o'clock in the morning and be done at 830 and play catch and release the rest of the day. But the guys wanted to wait. We made four or five wades, caught two or three fish. I said, all right, y'all want to go catch your fish now? Yeah. <laughs> Went out there, boom, put a – we threw plastics, and, and then one uh, – if, if you don't work it fast enough, you know, you'll get caught up in a rock, you'll lose a lot of jigs. But if you put a cork, you know, a, a, a plastic or a, a gulp underneath the cork, you can catch them just as easy, and it keeps it out of the rocks. Yeah. And we did that and came on home. So it, it, it's changed the way we fish, and it's – man, I if, if we could get another 40 acres, it would be nice. I'm <laughs> – I hope it can happen. <laughs> Anybody out there? I'm I'll, trying. I'll give a little money myself. I, I'm trying. I'm trying. Bill, do you want to? Uh, you did a research project in East Matagorda Bay where it looked at um, the species uh, matrix or makeup of reefs as opposed to seagrass. And did you find that you had a predominantly male trout were on reef complexes? Yeah, it was. Primarily in the spring, it was males on there, but also we, we never caught redfish on those either, which is interesting that he didn't. We These were reefs that had three or four feet of vertical elevation, the ones that we were looking at for the bird islands. And um, and the species composition there, we, we didn't catch hardheads, and we didn't catch red drum. We very rarely catch hardheads on, right. on half-moon. We caught gaff top. Do that. And we caught a lot of male trout. And I was going to ask you, when you're filleting them out, do you see a lot of males on there? Not this week, but normally there are. But not this weekend. There was a lot of females that were egging that you know, had eggs in them. Uh, but but we do in the summertime. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of male trout on them. And, and that's why I started the study. I, I, Jay Hewitt was coming in spring fishing and from East Bay, and I was watching him flaying in Parks Wildlife at the time when they were doing a virtual population analysis of spotted sea trout. We weren't getting a lot of males, and they thought there was a very strange ratio of male to females. You know, very few males to all the females. And, and I noticed all he had was males, and so I set the gill nets. I asked to set gillnets on the reefs in addition to the ones on the shoreline in comparison. That's how it started. And sure enough, the, the reefs that had vertical elevation in the middle of the body of water had predominantly male trout in the spring, and the species composition was different as well. And so, yeah, it was awesome. a neat study. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's happened. I don't know. Uh, I just can tell you uh, this spring, these past five days were the best quality fish I've ever caught on that reef in the last. And we've had some great days, but, but, just quality quality i don't know if it's because the reef's growing because it's attracting a, 
a new clientele or something. I don't know of, of trout. I'm not gonna argue. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> but it it was pretty impressive because I had people ask me. I don't really like to tell them where I go. You know, hey, where'd you catch those? Because they look like East Bay fish. And if you know our bay, our East Bay fish look a whole lot different than West Bay fish. They're a bigger fish, and all my boxes look like East Bay fish, and and uh, it, it was pretty impressive. Well, the cat's out of the bag, so no, I get some. That's all right. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I quit trying to hide it about three years ago. <laughs> well, hopefully you keep expanding this thing, and it'll be enough space for everybody to, to utilize it. All right, I want to spit out some of these facts, Mark, and then you guys can jump into this this report. Will that work? Because we were going to talk about the economic impact of this reef, and so I'm hoping the whole roundtable can contribute to this one. First, for... The resource specifically, uh, we'll just look at oyster size increased by over 500% in a year and a half from January 2014, no, two and a half, January 2014 to May 2016, oyster size increased 551%. Biodiversity was 40% higher. Biomass was over 1,000% greater on the reef than adjacent bay bottoms, and oysters have attached to roughly 70% of the total reef surface. And then economic impact, Mark. 12 jobs were created. This is on an annual basis, I assume. Absolutely. 12 jobs were created. Annual labor income, $465,000. The added value to the economy was $691,000. And the economic output was $1.2 million. All from a 50-acre restoration site. Crazy. Pretty impressive. Yeah. And isn't that an annual estimate, the $1.2 million? Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So this study... Was, was this study a part of the original funding of the project, or was this something that we're after the fact? You guys said, "Hey, we need to look." It, it, it was after the fact, no doubt. I mean, you know, after you know, getting you know calls from Bill, you know, I, I you know, you know, like, dude, you know, Half Moon Reef's on fire, man. You're not going to believe this, you know. And then I would email or, or text uh, Bink and, and confirm that, you know, uh, you know, on these weekends there was 35, 40 boats sometimes, and uh, you know, I and I mean, intuitively, I knew that it would hold fish and people could enjoy fishing it and that type of stuff. But, you know, it was really kind of smack in the face, like, this really is productive and people really are using it. Uh, and so I started telling some of my colleagues in the Nature Conservancy about it. And uh, we quickly came to the determination that we need to we need to quantify this. We need to figure out what's going on here. Uh, and so uh, it was not part of the original monitoring that I had intended to do, although I did talk about it when I was would give various presentations about, about the recreational benefits, uh, fishing uh, benefits. But, and that's when we got engaged with Bill, started talking to Bill and, uh, at Sea Grant. And they have, uh, still have, well, I think he's moved up to Purdue, but uh, you guys had an economist, a social economist, excuse me, a social sociologist, sociologist uh, on board, as well as uh, an economist with Sea uh, Grant slash AgriLife. Agri uh, down in the Corpus area. And so at that point, we started formulating a plan to, to do a study, a socioeconomic study. And so while, you know, TNC did uh, at the very early stages work with Sea Grant on kind of building out the framework of the surveys and, and kind of how we wanted to put it together, we then stepped, you know, stepped back, stepped away, uh, and then let Sea Grant do what they, what they do best. And, and we liked it that way. We didn't want it to be a very biased uh, outcome. Uh, you know, Sea Grant is an honest broker. In, in our opinion, Seagrat is an honest broker in, in the communities where they work. And so at that point, we just sort of backed away and we let Bill uh, and his team kind of do what uh, what they did. And so I, 
Bill, you want to tell them a little bit about how it was laid out? Well, first I'd just like to say that, that you know, that a lot of credit goes to Mark and to the Nature Conservancy for, be so, for being so um, proactive in monitoring how this reef has grown and developed over time because I'm not aware of this level of biological monitoring in addition to the recreational fishing assessments, you know, and so there's been some, and also this was the first oyster reef restoration project of any size in the state of Texas that I'm aware of when Mark started planning Half Moon Reef. When we started pitching this, Parks and Wildlife was not yet into the oyster restoration game or the reef restoration game. So this was this was sort of on the cutting edge of the whole deal. And so the fact that they've monitored this, I think that, that information is really valuable. So they get a, a lot of credit for, for, for spending the money to do this kind of stuff, right? But basically what we did was, you know, I was initially, as Bink said, Ray Sexton hit the reef, and I got a call from my buddies in Palacios and said, boy, that reef thing you've been talking about, somebody hit it and they lost their lower unit. And so I called Mark, and within a few days, I was getting reports of great fishing success off the reef, and and uh, that seemed to sort of calm the waters. You know? <laughs> and more people started thinking about how great a fishing spot it was, and so I started talking to Mark. And so basically all we did was, um, you know, Parks and Wildlife has a pretty comprehensive recreational angler survey. And so we sort of took that and used it as a template and uh, our sociologist with Sea Grant, Stuart Carlton, Dr. Carlton, he developed some questions. E economist, <laughs> economist Andrew Ropicki, he put together his little list of questions and we did it for, we got a little bit of a late start because of some, um, some uh, red tape issues, but um, we did it for probably close to six months, didn't we? Maybe a little bit longer than that. And um, so we, we, did, we did surveys at Matagorda Harbor because that seemed to be sort of a central location for the activity there when we collected um, email addresses for follow-up surveys and um, I also submitted a as comprehensive a list of fishing guides from the areas I could to the two academics to send a special survey to them to assess their economic impact their involvement their knowledge of the thing and it was um it was a uh, it was really interesting interesting survey so when you started getting those results back were you just imagined you were floored at least I, just reading this thing it's pretty shocking to see that the level of impact that it does, does have I was, but you know, I, I truthfully, I mean, my biggest curiosity was, is it going to hold a trout like the reefs in East Matagorda Bay does? You know, and I thought if it did, then the, then the people would fish it, right? Yeah. And like you said, though, you know, it's in a big open fetch of water. But um, some of the some of the the numbers they they were big, but I I don't know that I would say I was surprised. I was pleased. You know, I was pleased because um, I knew. I, well, I guess it's sort of intuitively. I mean, with the team that was working on it and everything, and the progress reports I've been getting. I was pretty confident that the reef was going to produce, you know, I mean, it wasn't like I was worried that, you know, there would be no fish or that the reef wasn't going to be a productive reef, you know, in terms of oysters or any of the invertebrates there, you know, because, I mean, the way it was put together, there was a lot, a lot of time and thought involved in how this thing was going to be put on the ground. Yeah. So, yeah. so nine months of looking at surveys and getting feedback from the, the users or the consumers and then goes in, were you a part of, you know, writing, oh, that wasn't it, that's the same. You know this no I, all, I, all I did was put together the survey and do ask the questions and then um, but I mean I reviewed a couple of versions of it but uh, but most of the data and, and the writing was done by but but Bill stuff. really was instrumental in actually you know doing the at boat ramp surveys right uh, which were real critical and, and as I recall we designed them very spe specifically one to not be like a creel survey right. we're not looking in your box wanting to know what fish you caught how big or whatever uh, it was intended to be not more than about three minutes. Mm -hmm. And we knew that when people are pulling up out of the water, they're tired, they're hungry, they want to clean their fish and want to go home. So we did not want to be intrusive. We wanted to just get in and get out, ask them a few simple questions about their knowledge of Half Moon Reef, had they been fishing it, and so forth. And 
And so, you know, again, Bill, having worked in the area, know, knew, knowing the temperament and the culture down here, you know, you know, we wanted to make sure that, again, it wasn't intrusive and, and we got the information that we needed. But then another part of that uh, was uh, an online survey uh, that uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but when you did this quick survey at the boat ramp, you asked them if they would like to participate in an additional online survey. Uh, they could either say yes or no. If they said yes, you'd give them the information. And then we also did the fishing guide, professional fishing guide survey. Um, as well, and that was online. So this is where we got a lot of our really good information. Uh, uh, most certainly was with the online surveys. And, and you know, just a curious sort of sidebar here. Mark came down to survey with me, and I explained to him that you know, with my Parks and Wildlife experience, because we survey recreational anglers with some frequency, they're not always very receptive when we walk up to them on the docks and to ask them questions when they're coming back from trips and. I was dressed very similarly to how I used to dress with Parks and Wildlife, and as I approached with my clipboard, some of them were also not very receptive, but the interesting thing was, when I told them this was about Half Moon Reef, their demeanor changed. And there were a couple of folks, in particular a guide, that um, when I explained to them it was about Half Moon Reef and determining angler use and satisfaction with using the reef, his whole attitude changed. And um, he wanted to help, he wanted to talk, he wanted to be part of it. So it was a really interesting thing that happened. Y'all, and. I'm reading this document. Where can, if people want to get a hold of this document, where because this this 50, 40 something page document right, right, has a lot right. of great information. So, is this accessible to the? Well, public? absolutely, and I think it's uh, Bill. It's on your Sea Grant website, isn't it? I believe so. Yes. Um, yeah, I haven't. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to access. I don't know specifically what I didn't drop down menus or things you need to to do to get to it. But yeah, it's definitely a publication PDF file. You can provide my contact information. Okay. I can okay. direct them to the right places. I mean, but do you think they get to it by? Well, absolutely. You know, actually, now that you now, now that we're talking about it, I think if you just Google Half Moon Reef Sea Grant, yeah. Texas Sea Grant, I mean, right. it, you'll, you'll find a link to it. It's a lot of great information on here. Some very interesting angler comments at the end if you want to uh, have a chuckle. But uh. right, <laughs> that that was really you know the, the economics was really cool. I like that. But yeah, there were there were some comments in there, and you know, in, in some of my presentations about this study. Uh, that Sea Grant did, you know, some of the, you know, the, the most flattering and uh, uh, parts of it that, that are most satisfying to me is when, you know, we see comments where uh, recreational anger, uh, anglers are saying, you know, we really think this is what the Texas coast needs. Mm -hmm. We'd like to see more of this type of uh, activity. We'd like to see more of this type of restoration happen on the Texas coast. It's important to us. And when I see that, that's where I get the greatest, you know, gratification. Um, the numbers are great. The economics are great. I really like that. But when I when I see that that fishermen are really happy with with what we've done out there, that that really means a lot to me. So along that line, anything planned in the future for any other base systems to kind of mimic what has occurred here with Half Moon? We 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 do, Shane. We've got a couple of projects online right now. Um, one of them we're hoping to go to construction fairly soon if we can. Uh, that's going to be a project in Copano Bay. Uh, as we said at the outset, you know, I, I had uh, done a very small pilot project uh, in Copano Bay uh, years ago, and I think actually Jennifer, you and Paul and, and others actually evaluated uh, that project for us uh, initially. Uh, and then, of course, Jenny's done work in Copano Bay uh, in and around the Lap Reef area. She's done some, some research. She's got some areas carved out for her work. Uh, but I've spent probably the last... Um, probably three, three and a half years putting together a project that will be very similar to Half Moon Reef in terms of its design and its structure and what we're wanting it to do. And um, we're right now in the, in the very final uh, design 
phase of it. I'm, I'm waiting, hopefully, any day now, I'll get the permit from the Corps on that. And once we do that, we'll finalize those plans and specs. We'll put it out for bid, and then we'll go to construction. So it'll be about 40-something acres. Part of that reef will, uh, will be very similar to Half Moon Reef in terms of its design. And then there'll be another part of it that uh, will be a little bit more low relief, smaller cults uh, that I think in time eventually uh, uh, will be uh, accessible to commercial and recreational harvest. So if, if timing goes according to your plans, when would first deployment, you'd anticipate first deployment of- For Copano. For Copano, yeah. Boy, it really depends on that permit. I mean, if I, you know, I, I would love to get this project in the water uh, this spring, uh, you know, April, late April, May, but I just don't think that's going to happen. There's just too much that needs to be done. Uh, but so I'm hoping, and Jenny and I talked about this on the way up, uh, up here uh, for this podcast, that I was actually seeking her advice and, uh, you know, when would be a really good, when would it be a good safe time to put this project in the water, knowing that oysters have a bimodal, typically a bimodal uh, reproductive cycle. Uh, but I'm willing to wait till later in the summer, you know, maybe September, October, if all the, if everything's looking right. And Dave, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. In fact, we talked about it last week. You know, just tracking that salinity and that temperature and, and seeing if everything's stacking up, uh, these abiotic factors, making sure that everything's lining up so that if we did, in fact, put this rock in the water uh, September, October, we, we might have a very good chance of ca catching some, some spat. Yeah, because you, you might just maybe just go into detail a little bit for the listeners because you don't want the material to be fouled with something else before spat has a chance to set and you have exactly exactly yeah i think uh, i think the chances of getting well i don't know i'll, I'll ask some of the marine experts about mm -hmm. that uh, here in the room uh but i would i would guess that if that material sat out there during the, during the warm part of the year it's probably more susceptible to, to biofouling you yeah, know algae think, and stuff on it but i think a good way to think about it is just for anybody to think about anything they've ever pulled out of the bay you know there's always something in the bay that's going to set onto a clean material that's dropped into the bay it could be a shoe or a rope or a plastic bucket when you pull out of the bay there's something growing on it so the the what you try to do with reef restoration for oysters in particular is target the time where the thing in the water column that's the most abundant are the the baby oysters um, like Dave said I mean you couldn't you can get a reef that's going to be colonized maybe by some barnacles or some mussels and eventually you're going to get a diverse community but for the the goals of of oyster reef restoration you want to try to maximize that that portion of the reef that's colonized by oysters and you can do that by timing it as much as you can to when the, the oysters are spawning. spawning. Mm -hmm. But then going back to what, what Dave said earlier, I mean, you know, you you still have that reef structure. You know, you mm -hmm. would still have that, that habitat. You know, whether or not you got a good spat set or not, uh, and you maybe had to wait another season or two for that to happen, you still have the structure there. You're still holding, uh, you know, a high level of biodiversity and a lot of other types of fish production that yeah. might be going on there. How will, how will people get, how will people know if Half Moon gets the additional 40 acres. Is that how would that become public information? Uh, well, it's, it's you hear the celebration. Yeah, you know the hooting and hollering on the bay. Yeah, I mean, you hear the champagne tattooed on his forehead. <laughs> you hear the champagne uh, corks popping. But okay. No, I've 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 requested additional funding for this project uh, for a third phase of Half Moon uh, Reef and in, in in working with Dave uh, and uh, his team at Freeze and Nichols. Uh, uh, you know we have all of that ready to go and it's just a matter of finding uh, some funders grantors federal or state or whoever that uh, uh, sees that project as a priority and as i said it's shovel ready and it's just hey you know um, what's the ask can you say i mean what the dollar uh, four million so yeah it'd take about four million for us to put that 
that phase three in the water, but we're ready to go. Yeah. And in fact, Dave helped me update the core construction permit. So last uh, last spring, actually, of 2017. So we still have, what, another four years on that construction permit from, from the Corps of Engineers. So we're ready to go. Has there, have we missed anything, any aspect of this project that are any talking points that any of you wanted to bring forward that we haven't touched yet? I do want to emphasize a point that Bill made that I think is really valuable because lots of people put things in the water and Parks and Wildlife, for example, has put a lot of reef structures in the water initially to support commercial harvest and they're thinking more now along an ecological perspective. But the point that Bill made and that Jenny and Mark have collaborated on is this monitoring, the post-construction monitoring has been so important because very few of these projects uh, have uh, enough monitoring to really evaluate how effective they've been. And the fisher, I mean, the fishermen, the monitoring there is, you know, it's a great, it's a great indication if there was no other monitoring, but uh, really this post-construction monitoring is really important. And I think it really takes folks like your audience to advocate for that type of work being done. Don't, let's not just put something in the water and forget about it. Let's put it, make sure we understand how it works and how effective it is and what we can learn from it to do it better the next time. But uh, that really is a tribute to Mark and, and Jenny's efforts. Uh, funding that and doing the work has been really important. My old boss, David Abrego, He'd be proud to hear me say this. Begin with the end in mind. Right. And that's, that's, you hear that all the time in tech management classes or time management classes, but that's exactly what you guys seem to have done in this case is you, you had an idea of a project, but you just didn't go, you really thought about what it's going to take in terms of uh, on the back end of it, support for moving forward, for validation of the project and justification for what you did. So uh, I'd also commend you guys for doing that because when you, like you said, Jenny, when you put a dollar value to these things anyone can relate to that because everyone has to manage a budget everyone has expenses and they when you say that this thing generated 1.2 million dollars to the local economy on an annual basis that clicks with people and that makes a difference I think I'll if I if we have another minute I'll add one more thing in here which is that I think another great thing that has happened with the Nature Conservancy's efforts and desire to move forward and even expand on Half Moon Reef is that sometimes in habitat restoration there's a tendency to want to be a little bit complacent with our successes and so to say we restored 50 acres it's done so well sort of let's move on that was a success and you know stamp it in the book and move on but what we've learned about um, habitats along the coast and in the ocean in general is that the losses historically have been staggering and really each conservation action each restoration action each management action kind of fits together as this larger puzzle and it's important you know we're never going to get back probably to where we were in the past but every project is a positive step in the right direction and and so i think it's important to recognize that it's sort of never a time to rest in terms of protecting and conserving and and rehabilitating habitats bink do you have any final thoughts i'm going to give mark the concluding comment no. here but i wanted to circle back to you just if you had anything else uh, you wanted to mention I mean, we, we thank the Nature Conservancy and the, and the, and the Corps. I mean, it, it's really changed the way we're fishing. It, it's provided a lot more opportunities for, uh, for fishermen of every, uh, uh, you know, amateurs to, to professionals to, uh, I mean, it, it gives everybody in the, the fishing column uh, 
the category a chance to catch a fish out there. And I mean, people, you know, we're coming from Atagorda, Palacios. There's guides that come all the way from Sea Drift to fish that reef. That's a long way. You know, it's about 20 to 22 miles from Atagorda. Uh, you know, it's that far from uh, from Sea Drift, Port O'Connor. Uh, the easiest route is from Palacios. Uh, I mean, this is straight across the bay from there. But uh, but you know, a lot of people are utilizing it, and I mean. And it's, you know, on a Saturday when you can get 25, 30 boats on there and everybody's having a good time and everybody's catching fish, that says something for a, for that for that little piece of estuary. So I'm, uh, I'm very, uh, feel, very, feel very blessed to, to be able to fish it. Well, thanks for your comments today. I think having your voice and you on the water advocating for projects like this really goes a long way in the uh, future of, of coastal restoration projects. So we appreciate that. Okay, Mark, you get the concluding uh -oh. thought. Well, you know, I was just sitting here thinking that, you know, what, what you're seeing here, Shane, is really the A-team. I mean, every one of these individuals uh, here on this podcast, you know, at one time or another, well, actually continuously, I should say, but I've looked to every one of them to teach me something about, you know, about this project, how it, certain aspects of it needed to be done. And uh, I'm really appreciative of that. So, I mean, I, I consider this, you know, you know the A-team, and, uh, and I'm really thankful for everything that they've contributed to the project. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to continue to work in the future on other projects. So, Excellent. All right, folks. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you.